Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Matthew's version, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. I invite your attention there. This is the conclusion of our 40 days of prayer. Uh, We've been looking at what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Uh, all for the past 40 days. And now we will do the Lord's Prayer and tie that in. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, in Matthew, this comes after Jesus had instructed the disciples about having the right motives in prayer. And then he gives them this model prayer. Notice it said, this is how you should pray, not what you should pray. I don't think Jesus was instructing us to say these words specifically. Again, it's not wrong to say these words, but this is how. This is a model. This is a pattern. And all who want to really engage with God will want to know, how how does Jesus want us to pray? And that's what we're going to look at. So let me make some implications, first of all, from this model prayer Because we say our, prayer is community-based. So often we think of prayer as individual. And there are many times, of course, we pray as individuals. But this, there's no me, there's no I in the Lord's Prayer. There's a lot of our and us. It's it's community-based. The reformer Martin Luther said, Never think that you are kneeling or standing alone. Think that the whole of Christendom, all devout Christians are standing there beside you. And you are standing among them in a common, united petition, which God cannot disdain. We have often different experiences of what we call corporate prayer. That's when the body gathers to prayer. And we encourage you to be a part of those and not to think, oh, what am I going to sound like? Are my prayers going to be sounding good enough to somebody? Or, or, or will I stumble over my words? Or I'm shy or I'll have to pray out loud, which we never force anyone to pray out loud. It's, it's, it's optional. All of things put the focus on us And we want our focus to be on God and doing it together. Our Father. And if you study prayer through the New Testament, it will amaze how often it's in the context of community and not individual. Prayer is relational. Now from there, would have been used to addressing God in terms relating to his lordship, his might, his power, his grace, God Father. Jesus along 
and taught his disciples something that people, they wouldn't have been accustomed to that. He said, say, our Father. It's relational. God said to his Old Testament people, through Moses, the Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, then all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. You see that? See, God puts his name on people and how will they know it? Well, they will know it by our actions. They'll know it by the way we live. They will know it if we are walking in obedience to him. The primary way that we treat God as holy is to lead obedient lives. I don't endorse all of his writings, but there was, I did read about an interesting story about Norman Vincent Peale. There's a book called Why Prayers Are Unanswered, and the author in that book tells about a situation with, with Norman Vincent Peale when he was a boy. When he was a boy, he found a big black cigar, and he put it in his mouth and started smoking it. He was just a boy. And then his dad started uh, approaching him. His dad came down the street and started seeing him, and he knew he was in trouble. So he took the cigar and, like, hid it behind his back with his hand, and he was trying to distract his dad. He looked out. There was a billboard that was advertising that the circus was coming to town, and he said, Hey, Dad, when the circus comes to town, you know, as the smoke is billowing up or whatever, when the circus comes to town, can, can we go to it? And his dad looked at him firmly but gently and said, son, never make a petition while you're hiding a smoldering disobedience. (laughs) Here's an example, another Old Testament example of something that profanes God's name. Amos, the prophet, talked about how they... The people there were mistreating others in many different ways. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. So when we're praying for God to be holy, for his name to be treated as holy. We are recognizing that he is holy. This is an act of worship. We're starting our prayer with worship. We're praising God for who he is. We're saying that you're holy, but we're also asking that in this world, in our lives, and in the lives of others, God would be treated as holy. Then he says, pray your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is asking God to bring his rule. Now, I, I admit that for a lot of my life, I have thought about prayer and approached prayer in terms of what it does for me. Anybody else willing to admit that that might have been some of your tendencies? It's, it's who we are, right? But notice these, the word, the common word that keeps coming here at the beginning, it's your, right? It's God made your name 
be holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. So we start prayer not by focusing on us, not by focusing on our needs, our wants, our desires. We'll get to those, and those are fine, and God wants to hear those. And aren't we glad that he does? But we start in prayer by putting our focus on God. Your kingdom come. Now, some of these words can be challenging for us in 21st century America to grasp fully because in this case, we don't live in a kingdom. We live in a democracy. That's, that's the type of government we live in. We, do, we don't live in a kingdom. And so what does this mean, God's kingdom? Well, a kingdom is a government or a country that is headed by a king or queen. That's what it is literally. And then, of course, there are metaphorical uses of the word kingdom, like it's a, an arena or a sphere like the kingdom of poetry or something like that. But in any kingdom, there's a king or queen, the person in charge. There are subjects that are doing the will of the king or queen. They are under rule. There's a territory. They have a certain amount of territory that they, that's their kingdom. And then there's a method of defending that kingdom, right? It's usually by force. Well, in God's kingdom, there's a king. That's Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. There are subjects that, are, that, that is comprised of believers in Christ who are subject to his will. And there's a territory and there's a method of defending or expand, and expanding. It's, it's not by force. We don't defend the kingdom by military force. We defend and advance the kingdom by announcing the truth. This is God's kingdom the kingdom of God is about what God is doing to bring his good news to the world, to change people's lives. You know, John the Baptist said it when Jesus was coming, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. God was bringing his kingdom in. He was beginning to bring his rule into the world. So, when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, I believe there, there, there are two aspects to it. I believe there's a, there's a let's call it a, a right now aspect and a future aspect, okay? The right now aspect is we're asking God to repair our broken world. His kingdom is perfect. His rule is perfect, but there are many situations in our world where it doesn't appear that God's rule is being honored, right? So when we're praying for his kingdom to come, we're asking him to bridge the gap between his perfect world in heaven and our broken world on earth. Here's a sample prayer from Matt Woodley on the words, your kingdom come. God, by your name and in your character, by your holiness, which we do not share, in your perfect ways, which we can't duplicate, repair the world. Take all the broken things and fix them. Take every out-of-joint thing and set it in its proper place. Take all the ugly things and make them beautiful. Take every tragic tale and weave it into a redemption story as you manifest your ultimate kingdom glory now. 
So, for example, every time you pray for God to repair a broken or hurting marriage, you're praying for God to bring his kingdom now. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When you choose to provide a meal for a homeless person rather than buying new clothes, you're putting feet to that prayer, your kingdom come. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you pray for your daughter to be a peacemaker in her school class, you're praying for God's kingdom to come. Paul said in Colossians 1, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when you walk across the street and you meet that new neighbor and you hang out with them and you try to get to know them so you can share the love of Christ with them, and then when you leave and go back to your house and you pray that God will work in their life, And bring them to salvation if they don't know him. You're praying, essentially, your kingdom come, even if you don't use the words. Does this make sense? We're praying for God's rule. We're praying for God's kingdom. Now, that's the right now aspect. There's a future aspect to it as well. And that is we are praying for God's kingdom to be consummated. And that's going to happen when he makes everything perfect after the second coming of Christ. That is ultimately when God's kingdom is going to be fully manifested. That is when it is going to come. Matthew chapter 25, I think I have this verse. Matthew 25 verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and it talks about how he's going to separate the sheep and the goat, the goats. The sheep will be on the right, the goats will be on the left. And then in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you to share since the creation of the world. So through the years... And up until today, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who've been terribly persecuted for their faith, they have prayed longingly for God's kingdom to come. Even a generation ago, the run-of-the-mill believers often prayed for God's kingdom, often looked forward to heaven, looked forward to that consummation writing songs like, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. But what about today? How passionate are we about the return of Christ? How much do we look forward to and long for and pray for God's kingdom to be fully consummated? Are we so caught up in the cares of this world that we've forgotten about where we're headed. D.A. Carson 
writes this, I suspect that our comfortable pews often mock our sincerity when we repeat the phrase, today your kingdom come. We would have no objection to the Lord's return, we think, as long as he holds off a bit and lets us finish a degree first, or lets us taste marriage, or gives us time to succeed in business or profession, or grants us the joy of seeing grandchildren. And then he asks, do we really hunger for the kingdom to come in all its surpassing righteousness? Or would we rather waddle through a swamp of insincerity and unrighteousness? So you see, this prayer is instructional. It's also convicting, isn't it? (laughs) Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is seeking what he wants to accomplish in yourself and in others. Now, when we, when we say God's will, we have, to, we have to automatically distinguish between two different things we're saying, two different aspects of God's will. There is God's sovereign will. That's the will by which he determines everything, that everything exists for his glory. And in verses like Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will... They were created and have their being. But his moral will, so so when we're praying for God's will to be done, we don't need to pray for his sovereign will to be done. It is going to be done. Sometimes we need to pray that we would submit to his sovereign will, right? Like Jesus did when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane about to be crucified. And he said, Lord, deliver me from this, but nevertheless not my will, but your will. So sometimes it's surrendering to a sovereign will, but it's also praying for his moral will. Like, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that you would be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So when, whenever we pray for ourselves or someone else to live a holy life or to give thanks, because Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. Or anything else specifically said in the Bible to be God's moral will, we're praying your will be done. And now that's the kind of the first half of the prayer. Your kingdom, your name, your kingdom, your will. And now we turn to our needs. Give us today our daily bread. This is asking God to supply our needs. The emphasis is on on the word needs. (laughs) Bread is a term that kind of covers all food, but again, Martin Luther suggested that it stands for everything that we need in our physical realm, everything necessary for the preservation of life. God wants us to serve him. And I think the first part of the prayer and the second part are linked. I think the idea, the context is we are serving God. And we are seeking his kingdom and his will and his name to be honored. And as we do that, we have certain needs to be able to do that. And we are asking God to supply those needs, our daily bread. Now, I think this can be difficult for people in our culture in 2022 in North America to really, really understand what it meant to them 
Certainly, give us today our daily bread because most of us are not day laborers. They were, most of them were day laborers. You know, you would go to work that day, you would go in the morning and you would get a job for that day and you would get paid at the end of that day. Most of us who have jobs are on a salary, right? We get paid by the week or every other week or once a month or however it is. They depended on that day. And if they were sick that day and they couldn't work and they were sick the next day and the next day, they wouldn't have food. And so they would pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. Another reason why it's hard for us to understand is, let's be honest, most of us have more than enough. Most of us have more than enough food. If you go to any bookstore or an online bookstore retailer, you're not going to find many books on how to survive famine, but you'll find a lot about diets and health and how to lose weight and this and that and the other. Why? Because we have an overabundance in America. There's food everywhere and there's large quantities of it. And the third reason why I think this one can be tough for us is because we live in a very materialistic society that has a skewed view of what needs are. I mean, daily bread is a need. You have to have food to, to survive. You have to have water to survive. You have to have sleep to survive. So if you know anybody who has trouble sleeping, and if you pray that God would help them sleep, this would be a good prayer to pray for them. But we, we think needs, I mean, we start thinking, how many cars do I need and how many phones and how many TVs and cable or satellite or streaming and vacations, and there's not anything essentially wrong with any of those things. But let's be honest and ask ourselves, are we praying for or desiring things that aren't needs? This is praying for needs. And so it helps us. I think this helps us pray for people that do have daily needs for food, right? Like the widows and orphans in Nigeria that we support. You know, I'm sure they pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. And so when we pray for them and when we help them, we're putting feet to our prayers. God is pleased when we pray for just enough. The writer of Proverbs said, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Remember, we're praying for God's name to be holy. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I think these verses show us that forgiving others is necessary in order to be forgiven by God, but they don't teach that we, have, we earn forgiveness in that way. 
This is asking for and practicing forgiveness. That's what we, we, we're doing when we, we pray this. God forgives those who are repentant. Those who agree with him about sin, God forgives them. And one of the primary evidences of confessing your sin and gaining God's forgiveness is a forgiving spirit towards others. I do think as we more and more realize how much God has forgiven us, it gives us empathy for others who need forgiveness. But if someone's proud and they don't think they need forgiveness by God, it makes it harder to forgive people. And then the last request is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is asking God to help us overcome temptation and for him to deliver us from the evil one, although I'm going to qualify the statement even though I I, I worded it that way, help us overcome temptation. How, How do we understand this request when the Bible clearly teaches that God doesn't tempt anyone to sin? Some of you might be wondering that. Well, why would we pray, Lord, don't lead us into temptation? We know God doesn't want to tempt us. In fact, James says, when tempted, and James is going to tell us where sin comes from, where temptation comes from, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after sin has conceived, Or then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So in light of that verse, how do we understand the request, Lord, lead us not into temptation? Well, let me say a couple things about that. First of all, in the Lord's Prayer, there is a difference between creating reality and submitting to reality. It's a difference between creating reality and submitting to reality. I mentioned when we pray, may your name be treated as holy. We cannot make God's name any more holy than it is. We're not creating that reality. We're just submitting to that reality as we pray it. We're recognizing it. We're living in light of it. And then we need to understand the, sec- uh, the whole petition uh, In terms of the second one, like the first petition, lead us not in light of the counterpart. What's the counterpart? Deliver us from the evil one. Satan is in view here. Satan is the one that tempts people. Our flesh is drawn to evil, as James 1 talks about. But Satan, that's one of the main things he does. He he helps in this process of temptation. John Stott paraphrases it this way. Do not allow us to be so led into temptation that it overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. In his book, The Social Animal, David Brooks summarizes a lot of social science by stating that information programs alone are not very effective in changing behavior. And he gives this example. I'll quote him. He says, you can tell people not to eat the French fry. You can give pamphlets about the risk of obesity. 
You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and not eat the fry. And in their non-hungry states, most people will vow not to eat it. But when their hungry self arises, their well-intentioned self fades, and they eat the French fry. (laughs) Most diets fail because the conscious forces of reason and will are simply not powerful enough to consistently subdue unconscious urges. Now, I don't have anything against French fries. But why do I bring that up? This sermon today, what I've given you today, is information. The information in itself is not powerful enough to change you. But the information is designed for you individually and me individually and us corporately to go to the one in prayer who can change us. Amen? We don't just need information. We need a Savior. We don't just need information to help us overcome temptation. We need a Savior to rescue us. And so all of this is assuming that we're followers of Christ, that we've put our faith in him, that we're believing in him, and we're resting in him as our savior. And so I I need to start there. Is that you? (laughs) Have you opened your heart to Jesus because he died for you on the cross and said, yes, I need a savior? Because if you haven't started there, you can go through all of these steps, and there won't be power. Let's look to him. Prayer is the ultimate help. I love the way Charles Quarles puts it. The disciple does not pray that God will assist him in battling the evil one. The disciple is so weak that he's little match for the devil. He needs a savior, not an assistant. A hero, not a helper. He needs a champion who will fight the evil one for him and who will snatch him from the clutches of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Temptation is strong and all of us need to say, Jesus, help me. Be my savior. Be my rescuer. Deliver us from the evil one. Well, we've learned for six weeks that praying in Jesus' name is praying in compliance with Jesus' character. It's about who he is. Does does this Lord's Prayer match that? Yes. It's praying based on his merit. We're not praying, oh, God, I want you to do this because I'm really trying hard. I'm really being a good person. No, it's only because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. Check. It's praying with his power and authority. And, and, you know, for thousands of years, Christians prayed something else with the Lord's Prayer. It was, it's not in the NIV and most modern translations because it came in later manuscripts. But even if it wasn't in the original manuscripts, it is true That his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. (laughs) So we can put a check by that one. And it is in line with his priorities and purposes. 
This Lord's Prayer shows us what Jesus cares about. It's his priority and his purposes. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.